And now, Fastened Like Nails with Dr. Mark Hamby. Welcome to Fastened Like Nails, and today we've got a special guest with us, Dr. Lou Sterrett. Lou, welcome again. Lou, I, I just love doing podcasts with you. I love sharing truth with you. And you just finished a class here at the, the Master's Guild here at Lamplighter. And I want to just prep our audience a little bit. Some of the things we're going to be talking about, but I want them to know you a little bit first. So those who haven't heard you before, you, you're in, living in Oklahoma now. I am, yes. You have a ranch there. Mm-hmm. You use horses to teach biblical truths. Well, Jesus used parables and and did healings. I don't have that in my resource. So I'm using horses. I got a little bit of, I got a rein in my hand. That's all I got. Okay. And, and these horses, you've been doing this for how many years now? 150. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on the road since 81. Okay. Uh, the first time I saw you was probably, I'm going to guess early nineties. Uh, I think so. Yeah. A good 20 or more, more years than that. Oh yeah. More than that. And then, uh, I'll never forget, I was sitting in the grandstand there, and you were on this big white horse, and I'll never forget, this horse was, you were on it, and there was a mare in heat, mm. and you were on a stallion. Yes. And I'll never forget you talking that horse into backing off, settling down, and being willing. He was listening. If I was on my one of my stallions, we used to raise horses. If I was on one of my stallions and a horse was it in It would heat, have been embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> there wouldn't have been a fence that would have stopped him. You know? <laughs> uh, I would have been off of that. They bucked me off in no time. It's such a wonderful picture of sanctification set apart from the herd to his master for a higher purpose. Mm. He's still a stallion and a great stallion, but he had a higher purpose in life than just being an animal. And his higher purpose was to... To honor me. Yeah. Yeah, that wow. makes it all the difference. That's, and that has everything to do with our relationship with Christ. Well, right. Every pleasure known to man is God's idea, but unfortunately it destroys us because we get it all backwards. Yeah, I think that is one of the highest levels of, uh, of sanctification, like you said. I was thinking also of a time I spent in, in England. Um, I was with a actor... And I had just hired him to do a part that was really insignificant, but he wanted 500 bucks to do this part. He was going to do two sentences. And I'm going to pay him $500 to do two sentences. And so I was reluctant to do it. And so I decided not to do it. I'll, I'll do the part myself for 500 bucks, right? <laughs> you know, but he, he came and met with me and he said, Mark, he goes, he goes, I want you to understand something. He goes, when I speak, he goes, my words, I want to have wings. He goes, I want my words to rise far above just words. He goes, I want them to have significant meaning in the listener's ears so that it reaches their hearts. Wow. And I thought, okay. And and he said, furthermore, he goes, Mark, he goes, if I'm a servant and I'm playing um, apart from the king and the king is in my presence, he goes, the king will not be known by what the king does. The king will be known by how I serve him and how I speak to him. Oh, wow. And I thought, whoa. I said, okay, you got the part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, that advice was worth the money. Yeah, sure was. And so I was thinking, you know, that has a lot to do with what you teach, not just through the horses, but through your teaching here um, around the world. Um, and you mentioned three things this morning that caught my attention. 
You know, I want you to also to reconsider the way you teach because I do have some something what against you. <laughs> <laughs> he, I come here just to get more exercise uh, and humility. <laughs> okay, I want you to remember this. Uh, you cannot think and take notes at the same time. Okay, so look at this. This is look at this. This is my folder. Of, I imagine of, of taking notes. notes from you is just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you got to give time for people to think. You got to like not speak like 90 miles in a minute and let me think things through. So here's my advice to you. I should be able to just sit there and listen to what you have to say. And then you should be able to give me all your notes afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I could have. And would, I gave it to the students, but I didn't want you to have that advantage. <laughs> okay. So, boy, I take terrible notes. But I do have these three things down. You said— well, you said there were um, four levels, there were three tests, and um, there were, um, in these three tests, there was a physical test, a relational test, and a conscionable test, consci- conscience test, a conscionable test. And of those three tests, um, what you shared today, I thought was life-changing. And then you also shared that there were seven enemies that God allowed Israel to, the Jebusites, Gergesites, the Canaanites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'd like you to kind of take our audience into what what are what's the meaning of these three tests, these four levels, and these seven enemies? What tell us a little bit about how this relates to us today and how it related to Israel back then? Uh, great, great question. Uh, New Testament truths are easily illustrated in Old Testament pictures, and so we see buildings and temples and journeys in the Old Testament that help us understand the journeys that we're on in life. And God's ultimate goal in all of our lives is to teach us how to love from a wise and understanding heart, and we have to learn it. We're not natural lovers. We're self-protective. We're we're defensive and guarded, and so he has to take us through stages by which we grow, which we develop right values and where we we uh, end up with trustworthy decisions and practices so it can be characterized as godly or as predictable or as trustworthy, just like a horse. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said that the number one goal for the Christian life is to learn how to love. It is, because God loves and love is God, but God isn't love. He's bigger than all that. And, and so we understand that that well, when we say love is God, we're really God is love, and there's a difference because we assign wrong definitions to love, and they're fleshly and earthly, and and God is far bigger than that. Okay, so, so there's a process. You said this morning. You said that truth sets us free, but usually we got to get beat up quite a bit before <laughs> we get free. So explain what that really uh, means. Well, God wants us to know truth in the innermost recesses of our hearts. And our hearts are decept, decept, deceitful and uh, desperately wicked. And so we tend to lie to ourselves or we tend to think that all of our motives are pure. And we don't even know many of our motives until we start acting some of them out because the, there's this big disconnect between our brain, our mouth, and our heart. And so God is always bringing us back to our driving motives. We may say the right things but have a very selfish motive to look good or to get out of an argument or avoid a conflict, and we really need to speak truth sometimes. Okay. So or we may speak harshly and need to be more kind and responsible in what we say. Okay. So you 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 looked this morning at people. Let's say we're we're part of the the herd of horses, and we're out there, 
We're outside of the fences. We think we have our freedom, but, you know, things are not, you know, you're not being cared for out there like you could be. Um, so a wild horse has got to provide for themselves. You know, they got to make it on their own rather than a horse that is inside the arena, inside the fences, cared for by his owner. The, horn, the, the horse reaches a level of, of high respect because he's able to honor his, his master and the horse receives a whole different um, reception of respect from the people in the audience. They see this horse now as, as something that is unusually, masterfully beautiful. Okay. Okay. So how do you get the person that's outside the fence, outside the arena to want to be inside that fence? You know, the scriptures of faith comes by hearing. People need to see something even before they're willing to hear something. Moses had to see a bush burning before he could hear some things. Uh, Paul had to see a great light before he could get his attention arrested. And uh, many of us had to see a Savior crucified before we realized what we had done. So, but you do need to speak. That's living a life of, for Christ it gives us an opportunity to speak into a heart and an understanding. But like a horse, you have to get somewhere in the same boundary, the same vicinity to be in connection, to even to start training or start a conversation. And everything we do with a horse is a conversation. Same with a person. You talked about the power of words. And our words are both our life action as well as the testimony that, that corresponds to that. So we use words with horses, but we have to use body language that's as consistent and as trustworthy. And that's why I think faithfulness is such an important part of the Christian witness that we're faithful. We're not, we're not always flamboyant or on top of things, but being faithful is very important to God because people begin to trust us as always Mm. being true, being a standard by which they may not like us, but we're a true standard. It's interesting. I was reading in Proverbs five, verse six, it says that, um, this smooth tongued stranger, her ways were always movable. And that word movable means unstable. They can't, they can't be trusted. You know, she, you never know. One day she's one way and the next day she's another. And so you're right. Our, our words need to be trustworthy so that people can have the faith and that we're going to do what we say and they can depend on us. I like the that. The trainer has to be as consistent and trustworthy as the fence that doesn't move. And so eventually he begins to focus from turning to himself to turning to trust the trainer. Okay, so you said that the horse must see the freedom inside the fence so that he's no longer looking outside of the fence to see that that's where his freedom, he thinks that his freedom is outside that oh, fence. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. All of us think that abundance is on the other side of limitations and yet abundance is always within limitations. God always puts a fence around that, which he values. In fact, you put your jewels in a box, you put your money in a safe, you put your children in a crib because you value them. You put a fence around them. And that's not to uh, limit them. It's to protect them and to develop them and to move, move forward. And the horse then uses the fence instead of jumping over it to look to the trainer and find the trainer that he thinks is his enemy, who's really his friend. That's really cool. Okay. So you also used Second Peter chapter 1 about um, adding to virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. How does that relate to this idea of being inside the fence and learning. Well, the horse doesn't know the trainer loves him, doesn't believe the horse, the, the trainer loves him because he's frightening him, he's challenging, he's provoking him, but he's really helping him to get past himself and see outside of himself and learn how to respond rather than react. Well, that's good. So when you're inside that arena, 
I've watched you. You've got your flag in your hand, like a kind of a whip with a flag on it. You get this horse inside the fence for the first time. Now, listener, as you're listening to this, you know, picture yourself as this horse and you're being placed into a new environment that God usually right. places us in. And there's, we think that we're going to have our freedom by like, I've had enough of this. I'm out of here, right? We want Circumstances to, that are beyond our control. Yeah, we want to escape the fences that God places us in, right? And so we think, okay, we can have freedom outside. If I can just get rid of this employer, get a new job, you know, get a new spouse. All... He always uses people we don't like. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that something? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> okay, so, so now we and the horse are inside the arena, and while we're inside the fenced arena, the owner, you as the horse owner or as the, the trainer, you've got this whip and flag, and you're scaring the daylights out of this horse. Why do you have to do that? I'm only... The, the flag only works because he has natural fears, and his fears are always about being in control and uh, protecting himself. When he learns to turn to the trainer or hear through the fear how to have faith, then he begins to realize that it's never a matter of real faith. It's a matter of the object of his faith because the horse, he is the object of his own faith. He's trying to help himself, deliver himself. And he has to come to some end of that and realize, I can't get out of here. I can't find a way out. So I have to have a different source for my truth. And stupid of all stupid, he looks to the trainer and he finds a reward and a release. And that's exactly what humility and brokenness are about in our life when we begin to look to the one who we think is our worst enemy and find him the greatest, greatest savior and friend. Okay, so this is really amazing. So at the moment that the horse... He's now he, he he has a flight. He runs away. He's afraid of the things. Now he he gets becomes more realizing that okay, this is not doing any good. I'm running around in circles. I'm not going anywhere. And then all of a sudden he stops. And as soon as he stops and looks at the trainer, you stop. Yes. You, you stop the motions. The fear stops. Now there's a reward because he's turned to the the trainer for the yes. first time. And I'm thinking of a couple of people in my own mind that I love very much. They have been running and trying to set up their own self-protective devices so that they can continue roaming outside the fence. And every time they get inside that fence, they don't want to look to the trainer. They jump over the fence to get out all the time. But if they would only realize that if they would look to that trainer for that release, so that's a person now that's not saved yet, okay? Yes. So how do you keep, do you keep going after that person? So we, there's listeners here that have loved ones that yes. that have run away. You run away from the Lord. How do we draw them back? You know, I think vanity is one of the greatest curses and consequences of life. And all of us realize how fleeting, how empty life is. Even if you work hard and gain money, gain position, gain title, gain a big house, a car, it doesn't satisfy the, the niche. And so we need to remind them that we love them. And they're in search of values just like we are. They think it's in stuff or in sensuality or things like that. They're no different than us. But we realize I've tried the same thing or I can appreciate why you're after that. But it never brought satisfaction to my life. And I need to find something that was really not in vain. And I found him. Hmm. And, and he and following him, what little good I may do, means that my life has not been spent in vain. Hmm. And I think no matter what age you are, whether it's losing a friend as a teenager, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or losing an infant as a young couple, or uh, losing a job, or losing getting aged and losing value in the lives of others, or popularity, or a wealth, 
health, all that. Uh, we look back and life is just empty. Mm. Life is just so much in vain. And the scripture actually says, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower thereof. The grass withers, the flower falls off. It all disappears. And you can substitute it and try and put on another heroic thing, but we've got to learn how to walk with God and live because he's the only one able to redeem anything Mm -hmm. that was spent, like a burnt offering. Mm -hmm. A burnt offering is he's the only one who can collect every molecule of fragrance Mm -hmm. and save it for eternity when it's lost to mankind. Wow, that's really good. Um, were you looking at me in a special way when you talked about the aged losing value? <laughs> <laughs> a mirror images here, I'm telling you. My brother says, how come by the time you get wise, nobody wants any? <laughs> okay, let's get into the physical, relational, conscionable tests. Three tests. How did they relate to Israel first? How do they relate to us today? Explain to our listeners what this physical, relational, and conscionable tests, what do, they, what do they have to do with Israel and what do they have to do to us today? How did Israel face a physical test when they came out of Egypt? Egypt, Explain that. Good. The world is, consists of solids, liquids, and gases, and God makes all things by wisdom, understanding, and, and uh, knowledge. So wisdom really just with character, understanding just with relationship, and knowledge just with skills and developmental things that we do for our physical needs. That's why the wise men brought three gifts. They brought gold for the sustenance physically. They brought uh, oil in myrrh for the relationships and the healing, the loneliness that he left when he left his father. And they brought frankincense because his life would be spent and poured out as a fragrance or as an incense, and it would be vaporized. And in all of our lives, we're looking for people who, number one, show up on time and do the job, a physical measurement. You can bypass it, but it's the most wonderful time of actual accountability when the employee or the child can actually see whether the dishes are on the right side, like they're supposed to be, the counters are clean, or things are put away, or receipts are turned in, or the oil's been checked. And that's the time that you want to really exact accountability because you can both agree on the measurement. It's not just an arbitrary thing of, well, you're just opinionated or you're just whatever. You can actually see whether the job has been done or not, whether it's been done correctly. So that's where you build a measuring standard. So he did that in Israel by driving them physically from the land of Egypt and making them pack up their stuff and show that they were, because changing a location was the beginning of changing their heart, or it didn't guarantee it, but it was certainly a move. So they needed to eat in a state of readiness and a state of obedience with a vision of becoming something they weren't or going to a place that they did not know. And with the horse, you have to take him from the herd in order to have a relationship with him. And you have to put him in a different location. You can't train him in the herd, can't train him in his, in his normal environment. So even he took Abraham from the Chaldees to begin to build a relationship with him. But while we're, here's the key in employment or parenting or coaching, while you're playing the game and while you're doing all those disciplines, you seek to build a relationship with that person because you can't have a relationship if he doesn't show up on time. And if he doesn't, he only shows up part of the time or doesn't do his job, it doesn't facilitate a relationship. Mm-hmm. But you use the physical standards of measure to uh, seeing a job that needs to be done, moving in, in accordance with it, and sacrificing to get it done. Those are measurements that anybody in the world uses, secular or saved. But in that process, you begin to build a relationship. Look somebody in the eyes. You watch them take advice or not take advice. You watch other people seek them out or not. You encourage them how to respond to certain things. So now you build the second relational part principle into their life. God took Israel into the wilderness where they had no distractions. 
no cell phones, no TVs, no shopping centers, nothing but him. And they were to learn to listen to him, move accordingly, and let their body become his temple. <clears throat> oh, that's really cool. Because it was all about a relationship. And if they didn't get that, they died there. If our body's not his temple, we die there. If the horse is arguing with me about whose body it is in the round pen, and he's still trying to buck me off or debate about who's, who gets the right to ride or decide that, I'd be an idiot to ride him outside. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get killed. Right. So we have to decide this body now belongs to me. I purchased you and your body and have a right to speak to you through your body, the temple. So you and the horse actually become one in a sense. At least enough that we're willing to step on and make another risk. This is even true with courtship. You know, we say you shouldn't judge somebody in their physical appearance. That's all they got to represent their values. So if a person is obese or stooped or can't avoid you, uh, look you in the eye, shake your hand, we all make judgments about other people's judgments. If they're filthy or unclean in some way or they smell, we're distracted. We wouldn't move them into a closer relationship because they have not presented themselves well. So we all judge their physical jobs, and then we judge their relationships. How do they get along with their parents? How do they get along with their siblings? How long, you know, that kind of thing, whether they're a relational person. But you don't judge them on relationships if they don't meet the first physical test of being presentable and uh, self-disciplined. Okay, so the first test is the physical test in, in to see whether or not a person is ready to take the next step in their spiritual journey, they're, they're, to be ready for employment or marriage or anything. So the physical factor is let's, uh, God places a person in um, new employment, for example, and all of a sudden he's having a difficult time there. He's not enjoying his job and people aren't valuing him and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so he leaves. He leaves, and then he goes to another job, you know, and he finds something. Lou, I I have, over the last 30-plus, 40 years, um, I'd say most people are in that category that that I know, you know, where they just—people that have great potential. You know, they're they're leaders. They have leadership qualities. um, They take every opportunity. They're persevering, but they lack this one quality— the quality of being corrected. You're a Proverbs man, so you realize in Proverbs 9, the key between the wise woman offering her goods and the foolish woman offering her goods, right in the middle of that is how they respond to correction. Yeah. That's one of the most iconic chapters that actually flows together. Isn't it? And you're the man, and and uh, that's the measure of all of us, how we handle correction. That verse, what's that verse um, about correction? What's it say? <laughs> we quoted it this morning. Oh, we did. Probably. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll, if you I'll, rebuke a wise man, he'll still be wiser, or a word correct, to a wise correct man. A, correct a wise man, and he'll even be wiser. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned another verse this morning about correction. Um, do you remember it? Oh, come on. You have to have that somewhere. Let's see. Uh, he who loves discipline, loves knowledge, who hates reproof is stupid. That's my IQ test. I fail it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked about the spurs with the class. No, no. You mentioned a verse on correction this morning. Correction. Well, there's one in Proverbs four. It says, or five. It says, um, "Take take fast hold of correction. Let her not go, for she is your life." Mm. Okay. So there's there are physical boundaries, and these physical boundaries that God places us in. It could be someone who's giving you a hard time. Like I've had a government official who's been, yeah, you know, two years now, over two years, very difficult. But God has placed me in that physical, emotional boundary 
to test me for some reason. There's no question that God's using it. He's in control. The irony of that little situation is that you can't physically go on without his approval. And that just stinks terrible. (laughs) It stinks, but it's it's definitely, you know, look at David went through, you know, Saul throwing spears at him, Absalom trying to kill his father, Joab, you know, not respecting David and doing things his own way. So God places us in situations like that in order to prepare us for something better, I think. Yeah, and he uses physical things like our our wallet and our health. I mean, he, he gets our attention mm-hmm. more than anything else because we'll listen if our life is in jeopardy or yeah. our, our safety's in jeopardy. Being threatened. He, he gets us attention, whereas we can override conscionable things. We can override relational things and blame it on somebody else. Physically, it comes down to that level of measurement. Okay, so that's the foundation. That's where it starts. It the, is. The physical. And if we don't really exact healthy accountability then and tell people how to please us and show them what ways to do it, their job eventually as a relationship person, as a supervisor, is to help people do their physical jobs more effectively. So to promote somebody there who's a nice, warm person but isn't good at their perfunctory duties on the physical job means that they're just going to have warm fuzzies and get nothing done when they get promoted. You want to promote somebody who has, in addition to the physical commitments, they have the relational aptitudes and responsibilities and drives, and that's the person who gets the second level of, mm. of things. Okay, so I wasn't going to go into this, and we don't have to talk about it if you don't think it's the right direction, but okay, let's talk about marriage for just a second. So many men today have a very distorted view of, of sexual relationship, intimacy, um, and a wife, his, um, um, bearing a lot of that burden of a man's uh, lustful appetite that has been distorted. <clears throat> so, so how does a husband and wife start, how does a, a man begin to adjust and think clearly and purely as far as what the physical intimacy needs to be in their marriage? It's growth. We- we are uh, all physical beings and we have physical addictions and and processes that need to be improved in relationship, whether it's hygiene and what benefits or blesses the other person. Uh, just like your children, you want to clean your children up to take them out in public. So the relationships cause growth or provoke growth or not. So you see four levels in any marriage, the same way you see four levels in our training, the same with horses. And that has to do with the outer court, uh, mimicked after heaven, and then the, excuse me, the outside the court, then the outer court, then the holy place, and the, and the holy of holies. And so you see that there's a covenant relationship that starts a physical relationship. They don't come into the outer court until they have a covenant relationship. So then they have a physical relationship. And any couple can have a physical relationship, regardless of whether holy or not holy. But then the holy places, their relational, their social relationships become more harmonious and, and complement each other. And the holy of holies is their spirit of oneness. And that takes time. I mean, obviously, we want to marry a spiritual person. We want to know them. But to grow in those levels of intimacy means that you have to come at the exclusion of others. And each time there's something more separate you're leaving behind. You're leaving the gang behind. You're leaving the world behind just the two of you moving on and you're you're going beyond just the physical relationship to conversation and relationship and well-being to honor each other's spirit you can't honor each other's spirit when you're adulterous 
mm-hmm. when you're lascivious. So you're because you have other parties involved and you're defiling one at your own pleasure. Lust, lustful parties. Yeah, and so you're really not there with that person. You're staying on the outer court. And in fact, you're, you're keeping it because you're not moving mm. in honesty or in integrity. Thank you for spending time with us today. And please join us again next week as we continue our studies in another episode of Fastened Like Nails. God bless. You've been listening to Fastened Like Nails, a presentation of Lamplighter Ministries. Our mission is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord by building Christ-like character one story at a time. To learn more about our family collection of rare books, dramatic audios, or guild programs, visit lamplighter.net. To hear more podcasts, search for Fastened Like Nails wherever you listen to podcasts. Once upon a time, far and away, lived a strong and brave knight. Lamplighter Theater launches its biggest production yet. You might even call it Giant. <laughs> Presenting the Giant Killer. Now, you might say to yourself, but giants don't exist. But giants may be closer than you think. <laughs> Join Fidus in his fight against the giants of sloth and selfishness. Save yourself, Fidus. Hate and untruth. Trust and pride. The king of giants. To take down giants like these, Fidus needs wisdom. Stay firm in the faith. And a special weapon. The sword of the spirit. And so will you. My king will never leave me. And he is with me now! A must-listen for your family to conquer the giants in your life. The Giant Killer. To order The Giant Killer, go to lamplighter.net. lamplighter.net.